You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. <clears throat> good evening, everyone. I'm Grace. And I'm Chelsea. We're the Good Evening Girls. You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Everyone's favorite crosscast pod word. There Damn it, it. podword crosscast. Fuck, Grace. Okay. Because I want to start with crossword. Right. But I need to start with pod word. Pod word crosscast. <laughs> this is honestly like the fifth time I've effed that up. We're the, going the to get it. I trust us and I believe in us. I feel like now when we do get it, it'll be a lot more satisfying for all our listeners. I think so. They'll yeah. be like this damn They're going to write to us and say, can't. wow, Grace finally got it right. She yes, might you never. can end the crossword <laughs> podcast now. Yeah. She might never have a corrections corner, but she sure as hell needs to correct this. I do. She does. Um, speaking of corrections corners, do we have corrections corners this week? I don't. I don't either. But that's not because we don't have any. Maybe we just don't know that we have. Well, how any. am I supposed to know that I'm wrong if no one tells me that I'm wrong? Tell us we're wrong. It's not that we don't. We want to be. We we do want to be perfect, but we want to keep you guys happy. We want to keep you informed. No, if people know anything, let me know. I'll totally shout it out. But. If no one says anything to me. Then we think that we're 100% right. Yeah. And then if you come at us, like, at a later date, we're going to be like, well, you missed your opportunity. This so. is the same problem with cults. It's like no one's holding them accountable. Yeah. So if you guys don't hold us accountable, then we're just going to grow these giant egos, think we're right all the time. Yes. And then we, we do actually hold a TED Talk probably once a week about cults at the lunch table. <laughs> yeah, we do. I scream <laughs> about them to all my coworkers. And they're like, uh, Grace, went off again. I'm just – look, anyone can join a cult. So I feel like it, we should talk about it so yes. that people – no, you know, they get invited into this, like, pyramid marketing scheme. No good. Two months later, they're in a cult. Yeah. Not if you're friends with me. I'll tell you. She's going to tell you. Yeah. Um, before we get into our hits and shits, um, I want to let everybody know at home that we're recording on Halloween. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And we're also in costume right we now. We are <laughs> in costume. So, too bad you can't see us. Maybe we can post a picture on Twitter. Good idea. And you should follow us at The Good Eve Girls if yes. you want to see this photo. We'll also post it on Instagram, like our stories or something. We are The Good Evening Girls on Instagram. Cool. Nice little segue into our plugs Nice. There. All right. Shall we get to the heights and shites of it? Yeah. Some of my shits are actually Corrections Corner for the crossword. Let's get into it. Okay. So one of mine is from the October 24th Incubator crossword called She's Entitled by Debbie Ellerin. And there's a clue, 65... Uh, 65 down, fictional lane. But if you look at the crossword, like the actual grid, it's really 66 down. 65 down is not Ooh. like a viable entry. And it's, it's filled in on 66 down. It's lowest lane, by the way. But she caught you. She caught you out. I got you. Sorry, editors. All editors out there, beware. And then in the New York Times on uh, October 24th by Matt Ginsburg. He had 29 across, Wales' closest living land relative, and the answer was hippo. But hippo is a nickname for hippopotamus, or like a shorter abbreviation of hippopotamus nickname. Um, so he didn't abbreviate anything in the clue. Oh, I see what you're saying. So get it together. Yes, no one's perfect, okay? It's fine. <laughs> Just like we said, we're not perfect, and we're going to call you out when you're not perfect, so you can call us we out. We hold each other accountable. That's how we do it here. That's how okay? we grow and learn. This is how we advance as a society. I'm not judging you. I'm, no. I'm judging Will Shorts, but that's it. <laughs> I bet you Will Shorts changed that clue. <gasps> Will! Classic Shorts. Classic. Um, nice. Speaking of the Matt Ginsburg puzzle, um, a couple things from that puzzle. That was Thursday, October 24th. Um, the theme was kind of interesting. I actually kind of liked it. It was like um, one of the clues 
gave you the answer nothing or it said like the answer for something something across and there was no something something across so the answer for that was nothing yeah um and then the theme what the themed answers all s- would start with nothing but nothing was not included in the actual answer so G- 52 across was dot 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 dud and the answer filled in in the puzzle was burger and then, so the answer would be nothing burger, meaning dud, which I have a problem with that clue in general because I don't know what the fuck a nothing burger <laughs> I is. I have never heard of that ever. And no one at our lunch table really knew what it was either. No. And we have a good age range there. But people on Twitter didn't seem to be confused by it. Yeah, so, so maybe it's just us. But th- by the way, that's not the inc- that's not the same incubator crossword. No, this is oh, okay. the Mackensburg New York Times. Sorry. Oh, right, right. Um, I did like that. Um, I liked that theme. Although mm-hmm. the another one that was kind of funny, you came over that night. Um, 63 across, surgeon's goal, and the answer was left behind, so nothing left behind. Yeah. Um, Matt, my boyfriend, was like, shouldn't that not necessarily just, like, be their goal? Their goal should be, like, you know, open heart surgery, so, like, let's do the heart surgery. That's their goal, and then the nothing left behind is, like, an added bonus. (laughs) No, I was going to maybe do that as my topic, so I was looking it up, and there's, like, all these statistics about how many things get left in people's bodies. The number one thing are sponges. But it happens a lot. Yeah. So it now does. they actually have new, um, like, they have certain steps that they have to take, like in the OR, where like all the sponges are in certain slots. So at the end, you have to like, ch- the, like one of the nurses has to check and make sure all the sponges are like back in the damn slots, so that they're not like inside the patient's body. Yeah, you live and you learn. Because some of the some of these things cause complications. Some will never cause complications ever again. But sometimes people will like get scissors or scalpels or something left in them, and like there'll be infections. Dude, and- I'd be so. I'd, I'd be leave. like, you had one job not, and you yeah. left a scissors inside of me? Not only did you leave scissors inside of me, but, like, I'm paying, like, over ha- like probably, like, a quarter of a million dollars to get the surgery if, if I don't have insurance. And then you're just going to leave some fucking metal shit in my body. And then I have to get another surgery. And I'm probably going to try and sue you and nothing's going to come of it. Hello? Yeah. Anyway. So I won't get surgery. Even though the doctors keep saying that I need it. <laughs> just kidding. You're like, I, I don't want sponges that. in my butt. No. Well, yeah. Um, another thing from that puzzle, the Mac Ginsburg one, nine down was Wild West, question mark. And the answer was May. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that one. Mm-hmm. And here's another one. I wanted to talk to you about this one because we didn't, we kind of did the puzzle together, but not really. 35 down was, quote, the number too funny. Too funny. So it was looking for a way to say too funny, and it was R-O-F-L, which R-O-F-L, some people say R-O-F-L in, like, slang, like, or texting. I never do. And that was something I said in high school, maybe. I feel like it's LMAO now. It is. And also, nobody uses the number two when they're texting. I'm sorry. Do you? No, I don't. I mean, only if I'm doing it. Or, like, that's too funny. Like, nobody says that. And then if they do say that, they don't use the number two. I just say LOL at the end of every sentence I know. so that people know I'm not being serious. If you if I say LOL, I'm either not being serious or, like, I'm smiling. Yeah. Well, because sometimes in texting, things can come across as really terse. It's like my dad always texts me just with one word answers. Like, right. okay. And I'm like, are you mad at me? <laughs> right. No. If someone just texts me, okay, I'd be like, um, what's, like, what's going on? Like, so what's I'm like, haha, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds cool. LOL. <laughs> LOL, thanks so much. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's like in work emails when you use uh, – Exclamation points. Yep. To be like, I'm fun, but I'm still asking you for this. Yeah. <laughs> God. For people I really trust at work, I'll add a haha or maybe sometimes a cheeky smiley face. I do a smiley face, but that's only like people that I'm that I'm cool with. Yeah. Same sometimes same. a gif. Yeah, I do some yeah. gifs too. But we have a very a chill place to yeah. work. Very fun culture. Oh, oh my God. God. Um, I have a hit from the 
uh, queer crosswords. Oh, the Sam puzzle that we did. Trubico, Trubico. Yeah, it's called From Top to Bottom. Mm -hmm. And it was, I just thought it was kind of funny. 22 across, one's temporarily involved in sketchy business. And the answer was SNL hosts. That was a good clue and a good answer. And you were, you said that you thought maybe he was like Will Short's assistant, but I don't think he is. Which one? Who is the one that's Sam? Who is the one that's Will Short's assistant? I don't know. I was Googling. I mean, he does. Oh, no. Sam with the E is Will Short's assistant. Yeah, because this guy's. Puzzle's really fun. I'm like, I feel like I, he does not seem like the New York Times type stuff, but he has written a lot of New York Times crosswords. That's probably why I got it mixed up. And Sam with an E. Oh, yeah, that's – that's. sorry, I just pulled him up on um, – Sam Ezerski. I believe. Ezerski. Someone please correct me because I'm often wrong. It says Associate Puzzles Editor. Associate oh, okay. Puzzles Maybe he used to be the assistant. I don't know. Whatever. Yes, I knew that he worked with – or a no, Sam yeah, worked with. Yeah, that is. Associate yeah. Puzzles Editor. Um. But I did find a interview with uh, Sam, the other Sam Trabuco, with the New York Times, and he he has had a lot of uh, puzzles published. But he uh, um, he was talking about in the interview how he's like trying to you know push the boundaries, like with what's accepted in the New York Times. A lot of his stuff gets like. Um, sent back. And uh, this is just a quote from his interview. I've already debuted Sexile in the New York Times, and entries that Will has asked me to edit out of my submitted grids include BS Meter and Kiss Ass. I'm sure similar things will happen going forward as I continue trying to push boundaries. Also, come on, urine has such nice letters. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, I did like his uh, theme for um, the queer crosswords. The theme oh, yeah, was... Good. 60 down grinder spec for those who can be on top or on bottom, like four letters in this puzzle. So for people who don't know what grinder is, it's a dating app that gay men use, right? Yeah. Um, and so the answer to that 60 down was verse, V-E-R-S, which stands for versatile, I believe. Um, and that's like somebody who can either be a top or a bottom, mm -hmm. which is something that you would put in your grinder profile. And so the – do you want to explain the – how it, well, the theme? how top and bottoms work? No, 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 no. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, <laughs> for example, a clue will show – it kind of looks like a fraction where one down is wine container on top and off-road vehicle on bottom. So it's four spaces. So the first three are VAT for wine container and the last three are ATV for off-road vehicle. So um, it's kind of like the, the first and last – letters are the same. So for example, another one would be 29 down was zip over Taiwanese computer giant. So the zip was race and then uh, Taiwanese computer giant was Acer. Yeah. So yeah, it was cool. It was fun. It was a good one. Although he did have one clue, 50, I think across, 54 across, post caffeine high in slang. And the answer was Java Jolt. And I'm going to be like, who the fuck says Java? Do people say Java Jolt? I don't know. Yeah, let us know if you say Java Jolt. No, I've never even heard the word Java out loud except if it was named like on a cafe. Like, let's go to the Java Hut or something. I wonder if it's a regional thing. Yeah, Maybe. I wonder. Some, let us know if you say that. Yeah. We'd sure as hell do. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, what do I have here? Um, okay, so speaking of Sam, um, for his Saturday puzzle, he did the Saturday New York Times, the Stumper. Um, it was fun. It was actually really easy. Matt and I did it. Our, I do the Saturday puzzle really slow, and we finished it 30 minutes quicker than normal, which wow. was fun. So um, it only took you five hours. <laughs> yes, it did, instead of five and a half. Um, so 16 across, I wanted to ask you about this. So propagandist technique, six letters, big lie. And I thought that was like a weird clue for the answer. I think big lie could be a fun answer. But I felt like propaganda technique, big lie, just felt like 
Unless it's a actual, like, known saying. Right, and I don't know. It's associated with propaganda. Right, because when I think big lie, I think, like, Grace telling me about her boyfriend in Canada or something. You know? (laughs) It's not a lie. No. You know what, school, do you know what I mean? Like, that for me seems like a big lie, whereas propaganda seems more like state sponsored, like, yeah. mass messaging to an is. end. Big lie, I don't know. I feel like it, I'm fine with it. Uh, a clue that I did like from his Saturday puzzle 27 across hot spots, question mark, is leopard print. Ooh, I like that. That's a really good clue. Um, and the, and the, the really good answer, and the clue was fun too. Um, I have a question for. Um, Sunday, October 27th, uh, New York Times by Michael Palios. 40 across was just uh, a double quote mark, a double quotations, like the straight up and down ones, not the curvy ones. And the answer was R-E-W or Rue. And I don't know what that means. I tried looking it up and I couldn't find anything online. So if anybody's listening and knows what that clue meant, please let me know. What was the answer? Rue, R-E-W. And it was just a quote, double quotes. Oh, maybe that's the name of the... The quote? Like the that whatever it's called, punctuation mark. I don't I, I looked it up, I don't think it is. So if somebody can help me, that'd be great. Um please I, help us. Please help us. I really liked the theme from that puzzle. Um pattern once used for hospital volunteer uniforms with a hint to this puzzle's theme, and the answer was candy stripe. And so all of there was like shaded stripes down the puzzle to indicate stripes. Yeah. Um and then all the themed answers were candies, but clued not as candy. So one down was big fat lies, and the answer was whoppers. Oh, I like that. Or eight down types who think school is too cool, Sm- nerds. I was going to say smarties, but that yeah. does make sense. The one I had a problem with, though, was 14 down, gold diggers, gold mine. And the answer was sugar daddy. Oh. Which I feel like is, like, a little bit late in sexism because gold digger has, like, a um, a connotation that it's related to women. Like, women are gold diggers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with women, like – being with people who are richer than them. Having sugar daddies? Yeah. Sure. Having a sugar daddy, is there's nothing wrong with that. But the term gold digger is coded negatively um, and especially negatively towards women. So check yourself. Before you wreck yourself. Yeah. Anything else? No. I'm ready to go into my topic. Let's do it. I'm going to flip it. Flip, flip, flip apples and bananas. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Yeah. Oh, Tails, that's me. She's got it. Okay, so about my clue, <laughs> I found this in the crossword for sure, and I thought usually I, like, highlight it in my, um, like, picture app, but now I apparently I didn't, and I can't find it, but it is crossword-y, so it comes up in crosswords a lot. So it's usually clue to something like forward flop or marketing flop, and it's Edsel, ah, E-D-S-E-L. So it is crossword-ies, but what is it? Do you know? I don't know. So Edsel was a car produced by Ford Motor Company in between fi- 1958 and 1960, and it was super hyped up before its release as, like, the car of the future. Um, but it ended up being, like, a gigantic sales flop, and it's used, like, in marketing classes as an example of people not doing enough research hmm. and, okay. like, hyping up a product and then having it totally fail. Interesting. We, we kind of work a little bit in advertising here, so it's like I'm surprised I haven't heard that. Yeah, I feel like I probably did learn about it in like a marketing class I took in college, but just didn't stick in my memory bank, I guess. Didn't stick, but now it's going to stick. Yeah. So this was in the 19, late 1950s. Okay. So in 1956, Ford Motor Company became a publicly traded uh, company, 
So they weren't owned by the Ford family anymore, and they were able to sell cars according to current market trends following the seller's market. So market research and development for the Ed Cell began in 1955 under the code name E-Car, which stood for Experimental Car. Hmm. So it was supposed to be like the car of the future. It was very okay. high tech at the time. So Ford claims that they performed a ton of market research during the planning and design of the car, and they convinced a bunch of investors and auto industry uh, like magazines and stuff that this car was guaranteed to be a big hit in the buying public. They were introduced on September 4th, 1957 on a day called E-Day. And, uh, yeah, it did. I mean, when it first came out, it was like, okay. So in 1958, um, its first year, Ford produced four Edsel models. They had Citation, the Concer, and then the Pacer and the Ranger. And they all came in all different types. You'd get four-door, two-door, convertible, hardtop, et cetera. Overall, there were 18 different versions of the Edsel available, and this was unheard of at the time. Christ. So it really confused consumers because they were like, what is this car? It was kind of billed as being like luxury, but also an everybody's car. So it could be for like a professional like family man or this was like what it was marketed as a professional family man or like a younger person like trying to get a cool hot car but people were kind of confused the price point was weird too so they it offered a lot of features that were unheard of at the time and considered like innovative including a rolling dome speedometer warning lights for conditions like low oil level parking brake engaged and engine overheating and there was a push-button teletouch transmission shifting system in the center of the steering wheel. So instead of having, like, the regular shifter on the steering wheel, there was just buttons that were, like, D, R, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, it also offered seat belts and child locks on the back seat for an extra Oh, extra how cost. high tech. I know. You had to pay more to get seat belts. Amazing. 50s were crazy, Yeah, man. if you were alive in the 50s, wild. Yeah, congrats. You made it this far. So in the first year, 63,000 Ed cells were sold in the United States, 4,900 were sold in Canada. In 1959, the next year, 44 were sold in the U.S. and 2,500 were sold in Canada. And then in the last year, only 2,800 vehicles were produced. Ooh, yeah, woof. So total Ed sales sales were approximately 116,000, less than half of the company's projected break-even point. So not even like making any money, just breaking even. Wow. The company lost $350 million or the equivalent of $2.4 billion in 2018. God. Only 118,000 Ed cells were built, including the 74,000 that were um, built in Canada. So theories on why it flopped. In the early 1950s, when the e-car was in its early stages of development, um, Management thought the medium price market segment offered great untapped opportunity. So at the time, this was true. People were like spending, like middle class families were buying cars that were a little more expensive, but not crazy, luxury expensive. So when the car came out in 1957, the recession had started and people were looking for compact cars that were fuel efficient. This is when like VW bugs were really big. So uh, the problem was that they did all this research in like 55. And then by the time the car came out, the economy had totally changed. So people weren't I see. like spending that type of money on right. cars anymore. Right. So the name of the car, Ed Cell, could be another reason why it flopped. It was named after Ed Cell Ford, Henry Ford's only son, even though the Ford family really didn't want them to name the car uh, this way. Henry Ford II, who's Ed Cell's son, said that he did not want his father's good name spinning around on thousands of hubcaps. <laughs> and little did he know this would be like their biggest flop ever. Woof. But... Um, 
Yeah, people said they didn't like consumers wouldn't recognize that name. No, it's not the best name to name. It's not no. catchy at all, and it's confusing. cars names are like Liberty Ranger. Like I guess Camry doesn't mean anything, but right. Well, not to us. Yeah, true. So they did hire an ad agency called Foot Cone and Belding to help come up with names. Never heard of them, but they just. I feel like <laughs> I have heard of them. They're in New York, but they. Um, they came up with some names like Concert, Pacer, Ranger, etc., but those were used for the models, the many models of the car. Gosh, yeah. So a weird aside about the name, David Wallace, who was the manager of marketing research, um, and his coworker Bob Young unofficially invited freethinker poet Marianne Moore for input and suggestions to the car's name. And some of her suggestions were Utopian Turtle Top, <laughs> Pastelogram, Turcotinga, Resilient Bullet, Andante Conmoto, and Mongoose Savik. Well, um, but these are not if... officially authorized or contractual in nature, so right. they were never. <laughs> I don't know if those would have stuck at all either. So I feel like Mongoose Savik kind of has a yeah, or nice like ring that to Resilient it. Bullet one probably for the time. Now, no, but then yeah. maybe. Then people were crazy. Then people were wild. So another reason that it flopped was that Ford never dedicated a specific factory for Ed cells. Uh, so this mean it had a lot of like technical difficulties and mechanical flaws. So they were produced in factories that made other Ford cars, like just their regular Fords and their Mercuries. And the workers were just expected to accommodate the occasional Ed cell assembly with no adjustment to their hourly quota of Ford and Mercury cars. Any a lot of Ed cells actually left the assembly line unfinished. Uninstalled parts were placed in the trunks along with installation instructions for dealership mechanics, some of who, whom never installed the additional parts at all. Wow. So in uh, the issue of Popular Mechanics in 1958, 16% of Ed cell owners reported poor workmanship with complaints ranging from welding to power steering failure. Well... Yep. This is what happens when you try and push things through the assembly line. Well, yeah, and these workers are like, no, we if you guys aren't going to pay us more, we already have all these other things that we have to do. Right. And we don't like, have time to make your precious cars. Yeah, and, like, I think, too, what was really um, what made the Ford cars as um, popular and as um, well-made is because you have mechanics who work on, like, one type of car on this assembly line, like, their whole life, and they become, like, completely... Like, they're, like, masterful at, like, creating these cars. It's similar with, like, the Boeing planes when now we have these Boeing uh, Max 8s that are being just, like, tossed at these mechanics who have never worked on these planes before. And then they're being told, like, to force the thing through the assembly line and among other many issues yeah. with the Boeing planes. But, of course, you're going to run into horrible issues. And this is why we need unions. Exactly. <laughs> and now I'm switching my topic to you. No, just kidding. <laughs> Um, okay, so the advertising for the Ed cells was purposely vague. So in car magazines and stuff, they only revealed glimpses of the car through highly blurred lenses, or the car was like wrapped in paper or under tarps. They were sh the Ed cells were shipped to dealerships under wraps and remained so on the dealer lots. So it was very like hush hush on what this car actually looked like, but it was very like pushed on people like this is the new car, the car of the future, like the right. car for everyone. I wonder maybe somebody who's listening can answer this question, but I wonder how that marketing campaign either influenced or was influenced by the famous VW campaign where they did like a very similar thing where it was like um, with like a lemon, I believe, or something like that. And like yeah. they were very vague with advertising the VW, but it blew up and it was super popular. Anyway, if anybody out there knows anything about advertising history, fill Let us in. Know. 
So people hated the design when it finally came out, mainly because it had a, something called a horse collar grill. So, you know, the grill like on the front of the car, it's usually horizontal, but this one was vertical. Oh. And people didn't like it. It looked really weird. Most cars at the time did not have a vertical grill, although some cars now do, and it's not considered to be that ugly. But um, a popular joke at the time was that Ed Cells resembled an Oldsmobile sucking a lemon. <laughs> uh, automotive critic Dan Neal said the grill looked like a vagina. And oh. many other compared the grill shape to a toilet seat. Has he ever seen a vagina? I don't know. He <laughs> um, didn't say in, his, in this article. He's like, I've seen one vagina once, and that's what that looked like. Looked like a grill. My mother's as I was exiting. Uh, Roy (laughs) Brown, who is the original chief designer of the Edsel project, envisioned a slender, almost delicate opening in the center. However, the engineers were like, yeah, no, we can't have that because the grill needs to be big enough to cool the engine. So then they they slapped on, like, this gigantic, not slender grill. Um, And then they they need to the grill to be taller and wider, which led to the now infamous horse collar grill, as mm. it's called. Uh, people also didn't like the taillights of the car. The lenses were boomerang-shaped and placed in a reverse fashion, so from far away, the arrows were pointing in the opposite direction of the turn being made. So when you were, like, hitting your left turn signal, the arrow pointed was pointing right. to the right. <laughs> Even though it was on the left side of the car, the arrow pointed to the right. Woof. So it's kind of confusing. Um, the push button, teletouch push button, automatic transition on the steering wheel was extremely was an extremely complex feature. It was problematic because um, the steering wheel hub, where the push buttons were, was the traditional location of the horn. So some drivers would shift gears when they were trying to honk the horn. Uh. Yeah, so people didn't like it. Um, after World War II, Henry Ford II hired Robert McNamara to help turn Ford around, and in the fall of 1959, McNamara convinced Henry Ford II and the rest of Ford's management team that the Edsel was doomed and it was time to end production before Edsel bled the company dry. So he's the one who really pushed for the mm-hmm. end, and it was only Edsel was only around for three years, which is really short for yeah, a well, car. Yeah, well, boy, bye. In 1961, McNamara left Ford to become the Secretary of Defense under JFK. Then, during the 1964 presidential election, the Republican nominee, who was Barry Goldwater, would always bring up that uh, Mike, that McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense, was like the cause of Ed Sell's failure. He would bring that up during his debates, mm. like, how do you trust this person? Like, he had the biggest failure in car history. Um, but uh, McNamara had Ford's former executive vice president write a letter saying that McNamara had nothing to do with the plans for Edsel Carr or any part of the program, but people would still use this against him for years. Wow. So during his time at the World Bank, he had his McNamara had his public affairs officer distribute copies of this letter to the press whenever the accusation was made. Wow. So yeah, this haunted him, even though it really wasn't his fault, and he was the one who ended the production right. of it. He was like, dude, these, this idea is bad. So he was the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, and if um, the Ho Chi Minh Museum in Hanoi features an Ed Cell crashing through a wall, Damn. which is symbolically represents the U.S. military failure. I in had no idea Vietnam. this was like so massive. Yeah, wow. Some parts of history is just really fly under my radar here. I know. I wouldn't. I don't think I went to the Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, oh, sorry. I did go to Ho Chi Minh City, but not Ho Chi Minh Museum. Um, but if I had seen that car, I probably wouldn't have realized what that was. But yeah. now you know. So I want to talk about another flop a little more recently, a big marketing flop that has kind of had a resurgence lately, and it's mm-hmm. Crystal Pepsi. Mm. So in the 1990s, there was something called the clear craze in which 
people thought anything that was clear was pure and like almost healthy in a way. Yeah. So in 1992, Crystal Pepsi was marketed as a caffeine-free, clear alternative to normal colas. And its marketing slogan was, you've never seen a taste like this. In the first year, it made $474 billion. So that's not terrible. No. But then in 1992, Coke came in to ruin everything. Coke wanted to, like, bring down this competitor. So they launched, like, a kamikaze plan to release something called Tab Clear and make Uh. it so bad that it would kill both products. So Coke... Okay, so they came out with Tab Clear, but Coke already had this, like, clear cola formula or whatever. It had been a secret one-off type of Coke made as a part as a political favor between Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Soviet Union in the 1940s to disguise the American beverage as vodka, and it was named White Coke. So they would pretend it was vodka. I don't know why people had it seem like they were drinking vodka, but really it was Well, they couldn't, have, Ameri- they couldn't have American products. Yeah. Well, um, anyways, I thought that was kind of... That's really interesting. Yeah. Also, why everybody got to hate on Pepsi? Mm. Coke is a little salty. Yeah. Well, there's also another example that I'm not going to talk that much about, but Coke did try and, like, make new Coke or something where they tried to make their soda sweeter to make it seem more like Pepsi. But then people were like, wait, but we like like regular Coke. So then is, they stopped. Is Pepsi sweeter than Coke? Yeah. It's, it has, like, more syrup or something. I always thought Coke tasted more syrupy and Pepsi was more bubbly. I actually did in one of my marketing classes. I did a comparison between Coke and Pepsi. Did you? I feel like it's, yeah, Pepsi is known as being more syrupy and Coke is more, or is like, I mean, whatever. They're both still packed with sugar and Or they're sodas, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm a Pepsi fan in case you guys didn't know. I like Coke. (laughs) So uh, Coca-Cola's chief marketing officer, Sergio Zyman, said Tab Clear was an intentional effort to create an unpopular beverage that was positioned as an analog of Crystal Pepsi in order to kill both in the process. The so-called born-to-die strategy included using a poor-performing tab brand rather than Coke, labeling the product a sugar-free diet drink to confuse consumers into thinking Crystal Pepsi had no sugar, and marketing the product as if it were medicinal. Did it work? Yes, they both, like, came off the shelves. People didn't like it. Wild. So David C. Novak, uh, he's credited with introducing the Crystal Pepsi concept. And in 2007 interview, he said this. It was a tremendous learning experience. I still think it's the best idea I ever had and the worst executed. A lot of times as a leader, you think they get it. They don't or they don't get it. They don't see my vision. People were saying we should stop and address some issues along the way. And they were right. It would have been nice if I'd made sure the product tasted good. Once you have a great idea and you blow it, you don't get a chance to resurrect Hmm. it. However, Crystal Pepsi came back. So in 2013... L.A. Beast, or The L.A. Beast, who's a competitive eater who has a YouTube channel with a bunch of followers, made a viral video of himself drinking a 1990s vintage bottle of Crystal Pepsi. I don't know how he just had that in his... It was probably, like, in someone's garage fridge. Right. In the back of someone's garage fridge. So this generated enough interest for a telephone and email campaign that got about 37,000 change.org petition signatures, tens of thousands of Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram tagged comments, 15 billboards erected around the L.A. area, and a commitment to ride a mobile billboard truck at Pepsi's headquarters in Purchase, New York, with a gathering of supporters at a nearby park. So Pepsi, like, saw this, and they would go on to have multiple limited releases of Crystal Pepsi, chances to win it in sweepstakes, and they actually had a Crystal Pepsi throwback tour, which featured Busta Rhymes and Salt and Peppa. 
That's how you do it. That's how you do yeah. marketing really well. And that's the things like listen to your 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 fan base because they're the ones telling you what they want. Don't just ignore them, especially in the age of like social media. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Things well, like if things catch on like that mm-hmm. and people so there was a throwback tour. They did it in three different cities. I think Miami was definitely one of them. I feel like New York was another and it was also tied to baseball. Um so it was at these like baseball stadiums. But yeah, it was like sponsored by Crystal Crystal Pepsi and they had Crystal Pepsi products Crazy. there. Um if I had known, I like that's something I would go to yeah. just because it seems weird. Although like so yes, Pepsi did a really good thing by doing the throwback. Like that's really good marketing. But what Coke did to, like, get Crystal Pepsi taken off the shelves is why we don't trust corporations, sheeple. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so all in all, it turned out okay for Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> and things kind of turned out okay for Edsells because they are now a very sought-after vintage car because there are so few of them in existence, not that many were ever made. An Edsell coupe in top condition is valued at $16,000, and a convertible is worth 47000 All right, let's get ourselves an Edsell. Yeah. So now you know. So, you know, things might flop at a, the time, but people like failures. We've talked about this. What was the other topic we talked about? How it was not popular at the time and then, like, it came back. Oh, um, the Labyrinth. Right. The movie. Mm. That people hated at the time. Yes. And then now it's, like, a cult classic. And that's that on that. Yeah. If you come out with something and people hate it, it's kind of a good sign. Just, Just wait, die like, quick, 40 die years. Quicker, and then yeah. it'll, like, come back and be better. Yeah. Cool. That's my advice to you. Nice. Good advice. Shall I get into it? Yes. Okay. So my topic for today comes from the Monday New York Times from Shalshin Bernicle. I believe I pronounced your name correctly. Please let me know. Um, It's 55 Down, Composer Stravinsky. And the answer is Igor. Do you know Igor Stravinsky? You know that I don't. (laughs) I feel like you might know some stuff about him that you don't know that you know. Maybe. Let's see. I guess we'll find out. So. Who is he? He is a Russian-born composer, pianist, and conductor. He was born on June in June 1882, and he died um, April 1971, so he lived a very long life. Yeah. Um, and he's widely considered one of the most important um, and influential composers of the 20th century. Um, his <laughs> career is known for stylistic diversity. His most famous work, I think, is called The Rite of Spring. Are you familiar with The Rite of Spring? Can you sing it for me? I can't sing it for you, but I will be playing you some examples of it because when I learned about the Rite of Spring, I learned about it through a film, which I'll talk about later, and um, it was transformative for me. It actually influenced one of my um, like graduate films, which is a mess of a film, but <laughs> thanks, Stravinsky. We'll be posting it on our Twitter. <laughs> um, okay, so he was born in the suburb of St. Petersburg. His father was a well-known bass player at the Kiev Opera House, and his mother was a daughter of a high-ranking official in the Kiev Ministries of Estates. Stravinsky uh, did piano lessons as a young boy, and he studied music theory, um, and he attempted composition. He saw a performance of The Sleeping Beauty um, when he was, like, 15, and he mastered the Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto in G by that time as well, Um, and he even did a a piano reduction of a string quartet by... Glasnov. Um, despite this interest in music, his family was very like, no music. Like, even though we have a musical background, you're going to study law. He went to university for it, though he basically skipped most of his law classes. So in 1902, he ended up staying the summer with this composer called Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who apparently is a very famous composer that I know nothing about. But so he was um, 
Raminsky-Korsakov suggested to Stravinsky that he drop out of law school and enroll in private music lessons. Stravinsky was already thinking about dropping out of law school and enrolling at like a conservatory to learn music. Mm -hmm. But because he was so old at this point, old, he was like 19 years old or something like that. (laughs) Man. Raminsky-Korsakov was like, no, you're too old. Like, let's do private music lessons. And so Raminsky-Korsakov, one of the leading composers at the time, became his private music tutor. And so Stravinsky, from 1905 to 1908, when Raminsky-Korsakov died, Stravinsky took two, um, like, twice-a-week private lessons. Um, and he regarded, like, Raminsky-Korsakov as a second father because his first father was like, no, you're going to be a lawyer. Blah, 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 blah. Stravinsky ended up marrying his first cousin, Katya. No. In first nine- cousin? Yes. Dude, that's okay. too close. And the Russian Orthodox Church was like, no, 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 no. But he was like... But like, like, I don't know any other girls. Okay. He's like, well, like, what if I did, though? Second cousin? I don't know. Maybe. No. I'm thinking of my second cousins. I can never marry them. No. No, no, no. He married his first cousin, Katya. They had four children. Um, That was fun. They lived in many places over the course of their life, and he lived in more places than she did because she died before he did. The places like Russia, Ukraine, Brittany, Switzerland, Paris, Hollywood. Um, While he was seeking a suitable house in Paris because of the World War, Coco Chanel actually invited Stravinsky and his family to reside in her new mansion in a suburb of Paris. Uh, they arrived, and um, Coco, like, fell in love with his work, and she guaranteed – I'm going to talk about the Ballet Russe later, but she guaranteed that the Ballet Russe could produce Stravinsky's Rite of Spring with an anonymous gift to the director of the ballet um, of $300,000. 300,000 francs, which is cool. Is that what Coco Chanel's giving them? Yes. She was giving that to the Ballet Russe, which I'll talk about later. Um, it was also said that he had an affair with Coco. Ooh. So the reason I know about Stravinsky and the reason I know about The Rite of Spring is because there's a film called Igor Stravinsky and Coco Chanel or something like that, or Coco and Igor, whatever it is, um, which based on a book. And it's highly fictionalized, but people do think that... They had an affair? They had an affair. Like, Stravinsky did cheat on his wife, Semi-regularly. He eventually... He was like, dude, she's just my cousin. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely had an affair with a woman named Vera de Bassett, who he married after moving to the United States after his wife's death. So he, like, had this affair. Katya, his wife, knew about the affair and dealt with it. Um, And then he eventually married the person he had an affair with. So that's that. Well, Katya was right. Yeah. I don't actually know if this the That's why Coco... you don't marry your cousin's people. Yes. For multiple reasons. Because, but... first of all, he married really young. And he married a freaking his freaking cousin. And then he goes on to be one of the most famous composers in the entire world. And, like, fame got to his head. He knew Coco Chanel. He knew this Vera de Bossett, who I think she was some sort of artist or another. I'm probably... There's someone probably out there be like, Vera de Bossett is blah, blah, blah. But whatever. Yeah. So, it comes down to don't trust, man. Yeah. Style. Stravinsky styles divided in three different periods. There's his Russian period, a neoclassical period, and a serial period. So his Russian period falls during the time that he was a a 2T of Raminsky-Korsakov. Raminsky-Korsakov believed in developing a nationalistic style of classical music and employed Russian folk song, lore, and exotic harmonic melodic and rhythmic elements, um, which eschewed traditional Western compositional methods. So they wanted to have a very, like, classic Russian style. And so Stravinsky, you know, since he was learning under Raminsky-Korsakov, followed that pattern. Mm -hmm. After Raminsky-Korsakov passed away, he entered into his neoclassical period. Neoclassicism is um, a period of time 
where composers sought to return to aesthetic choices defined as classicism, which was like really important for um, order, balance, clarity, economy, and emotional restraint. And then after that period, he went into a period called um, serialism, which is a method of composition using a series of pitches, rhythms, dynamics, timbers, and other musical elements. And I'm sorry if everybody's falling asleep here. I don't know anything about music. (laughs) This is like the intro into what I think is the more interesting part of my research. Serialism, which is his third period, has like a technique called dodecaphony. It's a technique that means all of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale are sounded as often as one another while preventing the emphasis of any one note. So basically, all the 12 notes are given more or less the same importance, and they avoid using a key. So you're like, this is in G minor. So instead of it being like G minor or something like that, all of the notes mean the same because they are played the same amount of times, I think. I have no idea. I don't know anything about reading music. I mean, other than the basic. Right. He's... Stravinsky is really popular or like really famous because of his Rite of Spring and because of how he changed music as a whole. Um, One of the things that he changed was his use of like motif, uh, which is like musical figures repeated throughout different pieces and different variations. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also what he would do that was different in his motifs where he would subtract or add motifs without regard to the consequent changes of the meter, which is the basic pulse and rhythm of the piece. He's really known for how he like fudged around with rhythm, which at the time caused a lot of like anxiety for people. Yeah. But like the bohemians who were like, let's fuck everything up for like, we love this. Um, and now he's famous uh, and he has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You got to change things. So we're going to talk about the Rite of Spring. It's a ballet and orchestral concert written for the, two, the 1913 Paris season of Sergei Digalev's Ballet Russe Company. Ballet Russe is a traveling ballet company based in Paris that performs between 1909 and 1929 throughout Europe and then also went on tours in North and South America, but they never played in Russia due to the Russian Revolution. So, and Sergei Digalev was a Russian art critic, patron, ballet impresario, and the founder of the Ballet Russe. So he was the person who hired Stravinsky to come and put on the Rite of Spring. The original choreography for the ballet was by Vasily Ninjensky, um, and the costumes and designs were done by Nicholas Rorick. It was first performed at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées on the 29th of May, 1913. Um, And the avant-garde nature of the music and choreography caused quite a stir. Many have called the first night reaction a, quote, Riot or near riot. Yeah, it caused like a huge thing. So the Rite of Spring was a third project that Stravinsky put out for Ballet Russe. Firebird and Petruska were his first two, were huge successes. People were dying to see the Rite of Spring. Like they said it was like one of the most packed performances at this theater of all time. And the Rite of Spring actually was the second performance of the night. So it was like the middle section. Mm -hmm. There was three things happening and it came on second. And people like were packed. The ticket sales were through the roof and it was sold out for weeks. So then we get into this, like how it began, like the concept of it and like how it was actually performed and people were like, what the fuck? So concept. There's another composer, Lawrence Morton. He believes that the Rite of Spring was um, developed because of Stravinsky's love of these two poems from the collection called Yar. There's a poem in that collection called Yarilla that contains many basic elements that end up in the Rite of Spring, 
including pagan rites, sage elders, and the propriety sacrifice of young women. According to Stravinsky himself, one day in 1910, quote, when I was finishing the last pages of La Sceau de Fou in St. Petersburg, I had a fleeting vision. I saw in my imagination a solemn pagan rite, sage elders seated in a circle watching a young woman dance herself to death. They were, they were sacrificing her to appropriate the god of spring. Such was the theme of the Sacre du Printemps, which is the rite of spring. Stravinsky later described the rite of spring as a, quote, musical choreographic work representing pagan Russia, unified by a single idea, the mystery and great surge of the creative power of spring. So it was designed for the stage as a ballet um, with passages, like kind of like chapters, with characters in action, but the music achieved probably a greater recognition as a concert piece and is mm -hmm. still widely played to this day um, and it's hugely influential to many musical works in the 20th century. I'm going to give you like a little rundown of what happens in the play. So the music starts. Before the curtain rises, the orchestra tradition, um, the orchestral introduction resembles, according to Stravinsky, quote, a swarm of spring pipes. The celebration of spring begins in the hills. An old woman enters and begins to foretell the future. Young girls arrive from the river in single file. They begin to dance the dance of abduction. The young girls dance the spring rounds. The people divide into two groups in opposition of each other and begin the ritual of rival tribes. A holy procession leads to the entry of the wise elders, headed by the sage who brings the games to a pause and blesses the earth. The people break into passionate dance, sanctifying and becoming one with the earth. So then the young girls begin engaging in a mysterious game, walking in circles. One of the girls is selected by fate, being twice caught in the perpetual circle and is honored as the chosen one. In a brief dance, the young girls invoke the ancestors. The chosen one is entrusted to the care of the old wise men, and the chosen one dances to death in the presence of the old men in the great sacrificial dance. That does seem pretty hippy-dippy hippy, for that time. Hippy-dippy-doopy, yes. It got a mixed critical reaction for its original <laughs> debut, and it went on a very short London tour, and it was not performed again until the 1920s after this. Stravinsky's score contains many novel features for its time, including experiments in tonality, meter, rhythm, stress, and dissonance. Um, and analysts have noted that the score contains a lot of significant references to Russian folk music. Um, but Stravinsky tended to deny this, because after Ruminsky-Korsakov, his tutor, died, he was like... I want nothing to do with the motherland in Russia and blah, blah, blah. So Stravinsky acknowledged that the work's opening bassoon melody was derived from an anthology of Lithuanian folk songs, but maintained that this was only borrowing from such sources. If elements sounded like aboriginal folk music, he said it was due to, quote, some unconscious folk memory, as if he was, like, imbuing this. And it's like, you're a freaking composer. You have all this stuff saved. Like, of course, yeah. you're pulling from it. Anyway. It um, was by accident. Yeah. So this... The Rite of Spring is notable for um, the ostinati, which is a motif or phrase that persistently repeats in the same musical voice, frequently in the same pitch. Um, and it called for the largest orchestra Stravinsky had ever employed. There was a piccolo, three flutes, an alto flute, four oboes, corps anglais, piccolo clarinet, three clarinets, bass clarinet, four bassoons, contrabassoon, eight horns, piccolo trumpet in D, four trumpets in C, three trombones, two tubas, percussion included five timpani, a bass drum, a tam-tam, triangle, tambourine, cymbals, antique cymbals, gyro, and strings. There was no piano, though. Hmm. Yes. And according to Philip Glass, quote, who is another famous composer, 
The idea of pushing rhythms across the bar lines led the way. The rhythmic structure of the music became much more fluid and a certain way spontaneous. Um, and then Glass also called it primitive, offbeat, rhythmic, and driving. Um, Stravinsky was probably, according to another composer, Andrew J. Brown, Stravinsky is perhaps the only composer who raised rhythm in itself to be like art itself. Rhythm became art. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to play you a quick excerpt right now. And then... Um, We'll see how you feel about the music. Okay. Anyway, that's that's that. That's that. I have another example which I think is like a little bit more representative of like the rhythmic quality of the piece. But yeah. we're going to talk a little bit more about, like, the production itself and why it flopped or not flopped, but why it caused a fucking riot. Yeah. So apparently Stravinsky viewed Ninjinsky, who was the choreographer's talents, with approval. So Stravinsky was like, yes, let's, let's totally hire him. He said that he was passionate and really a, a really great dancer. However, in his memoir, Stravinsky wrote that the decision to employ Ninjinsky was causing him a lot of anxiety because apparently – Ninjinsky's first attempt at choreography was for a Debussy piece, and it caused a huge scandal because it was completely sexualized, and it like all the people who came to see the the work in Paris were like, <gasps> and so he had a hard time getting work, and he, Stravinsky was nervous that this would happen with the Rite of Spring as well. He also said, quote, the poor boy knew, knew nothing of music. He could neither read it nor play an instrument. So while he was a good dancer, he didn't know anything about composition, and that also stressed Stravinsky out. But he still hired him? But he still hired him and whatever. The role of the sacrificial victim was actually supposed to have been Ninjinsky's sister, but she became pregnant during the rehearsals and she was replaced with a relatively unknown Maria Plitz. Or Pilz, excuse me. Maria ended up not being that – I think she was famous at the time, but Mm -hmm. we don't know her now. The constructor – the conductor, excuse me, Pierre Monteau, when he was older after he had conducted this ballet – he said to his biographer, I did not like the Rite of Spring. I have conducted it 50 times since, and I do not like it now. Apparently, the music contained so many unusual note combinations that Monteau had to ask the musicians to stop interrupting when they thought they had found mistakes in the score, saying that he would tell them if something was played incorrectly. According to his wife, Monteau's wife, quote, the musicians thought it was absolutely crazy. <laughs> At one point, a climactic uh, brass fortissimo, the orchestra broke into nervous laughter at the sound and um, caused Stravinsky to intervene angrily. So they're playing the music and this huge like crescendo is happening and then the music is so wild and strange that they all start laughing because they're like, what the fuck is going on? And then the composer's like, hey, don't laugh at me. Yeah, he's like, this is my wife's work. It's pretty bad that they all wanted um, that they like would start laughing or like be like, is this right? Yeah. And the, and the conductor's like, yes, this is actually right. You you are playing it right, Mathilde. Thank you. So it premiered at Paris's Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. The theater manager um, paid Digalev, who was the impresario for the ballet company, 25,000 francs per performance, double what he Digalev had been paid the previous year for his ballet shows. On opening night, it was reported, quote, never has the hall been so full or so resplendent that the stairways and corridors were crowded with spectators eager to see and hear. Cool. So it began with a different ballet, and then the Rite of Spring followed. 
It said that the disturbances in the audience began during the introduction and grew noisier when the curtain rose on the stamping dancers in, quote, the augers of spring. The augers of spring is like the first dance movement. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show you and play you a little piece from that, which is my favorite movement in the whole ballet. So, yeah. Very cool. Reminds me of Suspiria. Yes, exactly. It's very cool. But this is happening in 1913, and Suspiria is supposed to be happening in, like, the 70s. Yeah. You know? So people so. are like, what the hell is going on? Right. This is not the Nutcracker. Right. So music, musical historian Richard uh, Toriskin asserted that it was not Stravinsky's music that was shocking. It was the ugly, earthbound lurching and stomping of the choreography devised by Nijinsky. Nijinsky's assistant at the time later recalled that it was impossible to hear the music on stage because the crowd was so loud. Um, and in his, how, how loud was the crowd during a ballet? I know. Well, people like were. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. But in his autobiography, Stravinsky wrote that the laughter was derisive, and he was greeted with such loud like like people were so loud in the audience that he had to leave the auditorium and watch the rest of the performance from the wings. Um, and it was so loud that it drowned out the voice of Nijinsky, who had to start shouting the step numbers to the dancers because they couldn't even hear the music. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, Nijinsky was, like, shouting the step numbers because they what couldn't. A hot mess. I know. So, at the time in Parisian ballet, the audience was either going to be from two groups. There's the wealthy, fashionable group, so they were expecting more traditional performances, like very beautiful, like fucking Swan mm-hmm. Lake bullshit. And then there's the bohemian group, who loved anything that was outside the box. And so the conductor, Manteau, believed the trouble began when the two factions began attacking each other. And so people were like, someone said later he was sitting in the crowd, and someone starts, like, beating on his hat to the beat of, like, the music. Yeah. and. Then it caused, like, this huge thing and blah, blah, blah. So they're, but then, so they started attacking each other, but then their mutual anger soon diverted itself towards the orchestra, and everything available was tossed in our direction, but we continued to play on. So oh, my toe. God. Um, and then apparently they ejected around 40 people, and the performance continued without interruption, aside from the riot, um, and eventually settled down for part two. And it said that when she dances her sacrificial dance at the very end, it was completely silent in the theater. So then it only played a couple more times, one on a short tour in London. Yeah, they were um, like, obviously, can't yeah. handle this. Yeah. So Ninjinsky's choreography, which was the very first performance, was not again attempted until the 1980s. Here's some tea for you. So 1913, the choreographer Ninjinsky married a woman named Romola Dapolsky um, while the Ballet Russe was on tour in South America. Mm-hmm. Digilev, who was the founder of Ballet Russe, was not with them in South America. But Digilev was having an affair with Romola at the time. And so when he found out that Romola married Nijinsky, he was furious. So Digilev dismissed Nijinsky. And then he was required to hire a different famous Russian choreographer, Michel Fouquin, who had resigned from Ballet Russe in, like, previous years because he hated Nijinsky. And so he signed back on because Nijinsky wasn't there, and Fouquin made a condition that if he was going to be reemployed, that none of Nijinsky's choreography would be performed ever again. Wow. And so it was originally thought that the original choreography to Rite of Spring was completely lost. But someone somehow, I don't know how this works, like if you lose choreography, like especially in the third, like 1913. Yeah, it's like, not like someone had a video of it on their phone. Right, like how do you reconstruct that? But anyway, the Joffrey Ballet actually was the, pers- the, the group that um, re-debuted his um, choreography in L.A. in the 80s, which is really cool. So 
The show was first shown in the United States in 1930, and it was first performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra, which is cool. Um, And Martha Graham danced the role of the chosen one. Moscow actually first saw the Rite of Spring in 1965, which is huge because Stravinsky is Russian, and they never performed, the Ballet Russe Company never performed in Russia due to the Russian Revolution and it being too complicated to get all of these different types of people back to Russia because you didn't want to be a dissenter in Russia at the time because then you could be killed yeah. or put, sent to the gulag, whatever. It finally made its first debut there in 1965. He was alive still, right? He was alive still, but he was not involved in that. Yeah. He's old, though. He yes. died in, like, 71, you see. Yeah. In 1975, Pina Bausch, she was, like, a famous choreographer who I learned about the, like, my favorite rendition of Rite of Spring is Pina Bausch's version, which, if you haven't seen Pina Bausch's um, the documentary by Vim Vendors, it's called Pina, and it talks about her choreography, but it also shows huge chunks of the Rite of Spring, her rendition. It's amazing. Um, so she, it caused a stir because it was like a very stark depiction, and it played on an earth-covered stage, which is just totally beautiful. The Chosen One is sacrificed to gratify the misogyny of the surrounding men, which I love Pina because she's just like, she really like pushes the boundaries there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so at the end of the dance, the cast is sweat-streaked, filthy, and audibly panting because they're just covered in dirt. And, like, the the one clip that I showed you with the women stomping around, that was from Pina's version. Yeah. It's really cool. Well, because the ground is earth, right? Yeah. So they're, like, literally rolling around. Right. At the very beginning, they have these big dumpsters that roll out, and the men dump the earth on the ground and spread it out. And then the orchestra starts, and then the women come out and start doing the augers of spring. It's cool. So artsy. Yes. On... The 18th of March, 1971, Stravinsky was taken to Lenox Hill Hospital. Um, he was diagnosed with pulmonary edema, which I don't know what that is. He stayed edema? Edema. I don't know. He stayed in the hospital for 10 days. Then he moved back into his um, apartment, which he was had been living in in Paris. Mm-hmm. And then after a period of being well, he the edema or endema uh, returned on April 4th. Vera, his wife, who was originally his lover, insisted that he go back to the hospital. But Stravinsky soon stopped eating and died uh, at 5.20 a.m. on April 6th at the age of 88. Well, should have gone back to the hospital. These men don't want to go to the hospital. These men don't want to listen. I told them. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I really like the Rite of Spring. I was was sure that you might have heard about the riot at the... I had not, but now I know. Um, Another fun fact, since we had been talking about Igor Stravinsky potentially having an affair with Coco Chanel. I want to say, did you notice when you were in London that the light posts in London have the Coco Chanel logo on it? I didn't. The reason that is is because apparently Coco Chanel was having an affair with the Duke of Westminster, and he wanted to oh, actually, marry her. Yeah. And in order to like get her attention, he made all the light posts in like central London have his, you know letters and her logo i feel like i actually do remember being on a walking tour and then pointing that out yeah so if you're ever in london look at the light Dude, post coco chanel she has an interesting life yeah apparently she's a nasty though so oh she is i think so this all our faves are problematic that's what Not i'm saying she's a fave but that's what i'm saying well, that's life yeah so you should definitely watch pina's version of right of spring because it's freaking cool the women are fucking awesome and pina is the coolest bitch you heard it here first. I know nothing about dance other than I love Pina Bausch. So. <laughs> and that's all you need to know. Yeah, and that's it. And that's all on that. All righty. Well, thanks. thanks for listening. Yeah. 
we're going to go celebrate Halloween now with our office yeah, and I'm, all the fun things we're doing. I'm organizing a parade yes, through and the office. I've organized a Halloween scavenger hunt for the office. So, so we got to get going. Yeah. Grace has got to do my hair. Yeah. So if you don't mind, we should be leaving now. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see you here same time next week. Gucci. You guys are Gucci. Yeah. Um, we already told you, but follow us on Twitter at The Good Eve Girls. Yep. Or Instagram at The Good Evening Girls. And we will talk to you later. Yep. And I'm Chelsea. I'm Grace. Ciao. Bye.